FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. This is Saswa, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My other host is Mark Matsky. And tonight we talked with Lauren Coleman, the uh, author and noted cryptozoologist. Uh, he's written books like Bigfoot, True Story of Apes in America, Tom Slick, True Life Encounters in Cryptozoology, Mothman and Other Curious Encounters, Field Guide to Bigfoot and Other Mystery Primates. Uh, he's a co-writer on Weird Ohio. We talk a little bit about uh, Mysterious America and and a lot of these other books throughout this interview, but we kind of launched into this conversation without introducing him or the show, so I wanted to record something ahead of time so people knew what they were listening to. Um, so yeah, listen in, and um, apologies to those that sent in questions ahead of time. We did not get to them. We had a ton of stuff we wanted to talk about, and... Unfortunately, we were pressed for time. So we had an hour to talk with Lauren, and we crammed in as much as we could. And unfortunately, some of the things that we left out were the well, uh, uh, listener questions. We're just going to dive right in because we don't want to use up your whole night. And uh, I know Mark's going to have a laundry list of, <laughs> qu- of questions he's going to want to get to. Oh, man. So Okay. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're just going to dive right in. Um Let's let's start off and obviously talk a little bit about you, Lauren, and and your distinguished career. Um, but how did you get started in the subject of cryptozoology? Which which when you started, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't anywhere near as established as it is today. I mean, in my mind, you're kind of uh, one of the godfathers of cryptozoology, if not the godfather of cryptozoology. So how did you get into this? Okay, uh, I got involved uh, in first in the late 50s. I was reading the books of Charles Fort, and Charles Fort, of course, was a American writer who got very involved in investigating different cases like the Jersey Devil or the Loch Ness Monster, and his whole subject matter, Fortiana, really involves all of the unexplained. But what occurred was there was a very specific moment in March of 1960, I was watching a film called Half Human, and Half Human actually was about the Yeti in mountains of Asia. And I saw this a Friday night in March, uh, and then the next Saturday morning, March of 1960. I went to school the next week, and I asked my teachers, what is this about the Yeti? What is this about the abominable snowman? And they gave me three answers. Don't pursue this. Back to your studies, they don't exist. And so I um, got very interested in what was really going on here. Were they hiding something? Was there something more here? And I started reading all I could about what actually the subject was called romantic zoology back then. The word cryptozoology really wasn't in use much. There was one book I found by Bernard Horvillman on the track of unknown animals. And that actually was uh, written in 1958. And I started talking to game wardens. I started going out with uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, anybody that was interested in. I was a, a young child. I mean, I was I was a teenager, but I still 
needed some guidance. I just didn't go out on my own. So I went with my friends, but I also went with different people that were involved in hunting or involved in uh, being a game warden or zookeepers and people like that, investigating cases, investigating Black Panther sightings, investigating uh, little ape sightings. I was living in Illinois at the time, as well as, um, you know, giant snakes and other things. Before I knew it, uh, I, I found uh, Ivan Sanderson's book on the Rondo Snowman, which came out in 1961. And in that book, it was the first use in English of the word cryptozoological. Uh, I got in touch with Sanderson. I went to the book. I got every source I could in the book. I started writing anybody that was mentioned in the book, including John Green, uh, and started uh, corresponding with about 400 people around the world and uh, just kept talking to people through letters, but also, uh, you know, phone calls and all kinds of personal visits in Illinois. Went up to Minnesota to visit Mark Hall, Jerry Clark, people like that. And uh, at one point, somebody said to me, you write such good letters, why don't you write articles? So I started writing articles. Once you write articles, then you can put them together and, and into books. Once you write books, then the television companies... Uh, you know, the news people start calling you up for newspaper reports and also television. And, you know, one thing led to another. I, was, I went to every state in the United States except Alaska, going on many expeditions or explorations or investigating cases. And, um, you know, never never thought about that you know, I was trying to be anything other than an investigator. And I wasn't trying to do anything in terms of my writing other than sharing the cases. So. Well, I never what, thought about a legacy or anything like that. Let me let me ask you then. What what got you into or what kept you in the subject? Is it because for me it's the people. I'm fascinated by the people and their stories and the psychology behind the people that see these things. But for you, is it trying to answer the mysteries or is it the people or is it you know the the cr- the creatures that might be out there? What what keeps you going? Well, I have to say all of the above. I, I certainly early on. When I was younger, I had a backyard zoo. I had all kinds of different animals, reptiles, you know, mammals, all kinds of different animals that I was interested in. I, I saw myself being a, a zoologist when I grew up. And uh, and yet I also knew that there was some story here in terms of even if there wasn't real new species, which I, I thought there certainly could be. I mean, the giant panda had just been discovered uh, and mountain gorilla. Those, those discoveries were still pretty fresh in everybody's mind. And, and so thinking about there was a Bigfoot or a Yeti wasn't a big deal. Uh, and then I started being interested. There's still a folklore. There's a sociology here. There's a psychology for people being interested in this. And I was very much seen uh, by the teachers uh, that were in the schools with me as a, a, protege, you know, a, a prodigy, uh, some kid that was gifted, but nobody used that word back then. And so I was really, even the word renaissance, you know, renaissance kind of kid who was interested in lots of subjects. So uh, there was a passion in me for this whole area. And certainly I took to heart that there must be something for other people, too. And so I was interested in the people part of it, too. Are there any particular people that that stand out to you? I mean, you know, looking back on your career, are there any particular people you you think of often and, uh, you know, fondly as, as having some sort of involvement in their lives in this capacity? Oh, well, absolutely. I stood on the shoulders of uh, Ivan T. Sanderson. I mean, I was, he was my mentor. I read all his books. I communicated with him through 
early letters and phone calls. Uh, Bernard Heuvelmans, I wrote back and forth to France with him. Uh, John Keel, I started writing letters back and forth in the 60s. Uh, John Green, a little bit less so, but he certainly was there. I mean, I, I was involved with all of those people were my heroes. Uh, and uh, I certainly, Charles Fort was dead, but I certainly was interested in him. And uh, I liked people like, uh, to read people like Roy Chapman Andrews, Ray Dittmers, who was a reptile expert. So there was uh, different authors that I read, and then some of the authors I made come alive by becoming, uh, you know, correspondence with them. Well, so, uh, yeah, yes, very definitely there was some crop of people there. Well, I mean, like, kind kind of jumping off of that, as as far as, like, cases you invo- investigated, like, are there any of the subjects that you remember specifically as, because, like, for, for me and for the little bit of, you know, interaction with these people I've gotten to do, like, you meet some characters uh, investigating this stuff. Is there anyone that stands out? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of would never use the word characters because I think that, Certainly, I met some eyewitnesses that were uh, very involved, like the 1977 case of the Dover Demon, Bill Bartlett, who had a photographic memory and grew up to be a fine arts painter. Uh, there was people like that. There was you know, people that I would meet in Illinois who had said they'd seen Black Panthers and you know, had their names on file. But I remember at the moment standing in front of them, and and they would talk as if they'd seen an assassination or seen the planes going into the Twin Towers. You know, it was so vivid how they were reliving it that uh, I wouldn't, obviously, I wouldn't get into saying, well, I think you have a hallucination or Mm -hmm. could it have been a bear or something like that. I would take in whatever they wanted to give me and really meet people where they were at. Mm -hmm. So... uh, Obviously, I later in my career, when I got my uh, master's in psychiatric social work, it's almost as if that was the degree that already reinforced the notion that I was analyzing people as I was uh, looking into the cases. I was analyzing the cases anthropologically, zoologically, and also psychiatrically all the time, and uh, not throwing out any of them, but just taking all of the data in and, and putting it into my head and coming out with what, what should I keep pursuing? Lauren, you'd mentioned Ivan Sanderson before, and um, I was just wondering, for the sake of our some of our newer listeners, could you talk a little bit about uh, Sanderson's career and since you knew him fairly well, sort of what he was like? Because I'm afraid that he's becoming uh, sort of a, an unsung hero, uh, you know, and not as prominently thought of as some others of that same era. And I think, you know, that's certainly a shame. Uh, can you tell us some more about him? Sure. Well, Sanderson um, was born in, I believe it was 1911, and then he died in uh, the early 70s when he was 62 years old. So you get this whole feeling he led a very quick life. He was a Scottish individual who eventually moved over to New Jersey after he'd served in, in the British Navy in intelligence. And he, when he was 17 years old, he went on his first expedition to the jungles of uh, Africa and then South America. And he, he was one of those, his father uh, was involved in um, um, whiskey, brewing, brewing whiskey and all of that. So I think he came from a very, uh, you know, wealthy background that would allow him to be a boy gentleman. 
<laughs> and so he did some of that. He, he went out and uh, would discover new animals. He would uh, collect animals for zoos. He did all of that stuff that was almost Victorian in the uh, early 30s and 40s. And then he got into, when he moved to the United States, he became the animal man on what we know now as the Today Show, uh, Gary Moore Show back then. And, uh, you know, you, you know about Wild Kingdom, you know about uh, all of these shows that came after him, but he was actually the first, in the, he had the first color television show on TV. And, uh, you know, really was a big deal back then in terms of t- television as well as animals. And he slowly, uh, towards the end of his life in his um, 40s and 50s, he'd always been interested in cryptozoology, but he started getting more and more involved in looking at cryptozoology and UFOs and things like that, and started writing books in the area, and then uh, drifted away from television and uh, kind of just uh, set up a society, the Society for the Investigation of Unexplained in Columbia, New Jersey, and got a following around him of individuals like myself and Mark Hall and other people that were uh, really the next generation. And and then he had died of uh, lung cancer. He smoked all the time. And um, it was, so he kind of left us early, and we all had to carry on these traditions. He was involved with, uh, heavily involved with the Minnesota Iceman case, correct? Yes, very definitely. In 1968, um, a young college student, Terry Cullen, uh, wrote Sanderson's letter and said, nobody's paying attention to this creature that's under ice, and would you come look at it? And it just so happened that Bar- Bernard Horvman was over in the United States visiting. So they drove out to Rolling Meadow, Minnesota, and for three days examined the body uh, in Frank Hansen's little outer shed. And that was the time when uh, certainly Sanderson took a lot of drawings and then Hoivermans took his famous photographs that are, are in, uh, in the book that's in French, which actually I know about as being um, republished in English within the next year. I'm going to write a preface for that. And that was exciting times because certainly the, the body looked like we'd finally had uh, a carcass, a cadaver of a new species of hominid, and then very quickly uh, when the FBI and Customs got involved. The uh, mysterious millionaire owner uh, wanted to get rid of the body, so he switched it with the Hollywood model. Now, the theory is that it was a millionaire from California, a movie star, not Jimmy Stewart, but somebody like Jimmy Stewart, who was in some ways a creationist and wanted to float the body amongst the public to see if people, how people would uh, feel about, you know, being... Uh, a missing link or something that still survives from prehistoric times. How did you end up with the uh, with the Iceman display? Because you guys had that at the museum. And as long as we're we're talking about that, can we talk a little bit about? Tell us about the museum and how you got to that point where you have sure. where you have a cryptozoology museum. Sure. So let me skip around then and talk about well the Minnesota Iceman. Uh, I got involved in 1969 because Sanderson Hoylman wanted to track down where this was being shown in the Midwest. And so I went to the Illinois State Fair in August of 69 and took pictures and sent it to them. And they said there were 15 technical differences between the body that was being displayed then and the body they originally had seen in 1968. Uh, And Mark A. Hall up in Minnesota did the same thing with the display 
he found. So we knew that the body being displayed was a fake, uh, but we still wanted to track it. And then it disappeared. It disappeared like everything else for a few years. And a couple of years ago, uh, in, on eBay, the body supposedly showed up. Naturally. The body being the replica. And the Museum of the Weird in Austin, Texas, bought it for $20,000 and displayed it for a year and a half. And then they loaned it to us at the end of last year for six months. And so we displayed it at uh, the International Cryptozoology Museum. So, a little bit about the International Cryptozoology Museum. Uh, I don't know if you guys know it, but we all grow old. Uh, that does happen, and we all die of something that a lot of people don't want to face. But I certainly, now at 68 years old, knew a few years ago that I needed to look at my house full of artifacts, souvenirs, pieces of evidence that was just overtaking my life, because... Being involved in this for 40, then 50, and 55 years, you certainly collect a lot, of, especially since I saw that a lot of people were really destroying the history of cryptozoology. They were throwing it away. People were dying. It was going in the dumpster. And so in 2003, I said, it's time that we create a museum. Nobody else. I've been waiting for somebody else to do it. You know, there's Bigfoot museums. There's a Loch Ness museum. There's Mothman museums. And those come out, they came out maybe sometimes after 2003. But I decided in 2003 to create the International Cryptozoology Museum to really look at all cryptids, all evidence, uh, popular culture items, art, artifacts from the people, you know, like even shoes and boots that were used on expeditions or shirts or whatever, you know, things that really gave a notion, as well as hair samples and foot casts or fecal material, things that were just getting left in drawers or being thrown away. And so now we're, um, we're in the 13th year of the museum. We, in 2011, we became a nonprofit, so we could start getting uh, donations from folks because we were, we still are, we were existing month to month on a, a shoestring budget uh, with, you know, lots of volunteers, and we need staff, we need accountants, and we need lawyers, and and rent and all of that, so you have to pay for it. So we're, we're kind of plodding along, and then you come to the end of the lease like we were coming, seeing last year. We were, uh, uh, this August, we we're going to be out of our five-year lease at the last place we were at, and we made the big decision. We're going to build a whole new museum in an area called Thompson's Point where there's a college circus. Uh, there's a, I mean, a, a circus college. There's restaurants, there's, uh, you know, convention centers. It's going to be a, a venue of entertainment and education. So we're building a museum that has a mezzanine and uh, a great parking lot and different things like that. And we're doing a capital campaign to get our moving fund. But we, we really see that we've signed a 10-year lease and we have a legacy now. Hmm. And it's just amazing. People from all over the world come. We've had people from Tibet and Spain and Illinois and Ohio and California, you know, just people come from all over to come to the museum. It's, it's a lot of fun to talk to so many people and see people with as much fire in their eyes as we have in ours to, mm -hmm. to share cryptozoology with. Well, yeah, and, and I think that's what it takes, too, to run something like that. Uh, I can't even imagine 
the the work that goes into something like that. But like also the the preservation of history, especially this kind of cryptozoological history that I think gets overlooked or is just filed away under, you know, local nonsense by most historical societies and that type of thing. Um that's that that history needs to be preserved or or it gets thrown into the garbage and completely forgotten about. Um, so just from my, you know, standpoint, thank you for, for what you do. Cause I think it's a fantastic idea and we're, we're going to come up there. We have, Mark and I have already discussed some sort of Saswa road trip to the, <laughs> to the museum sometime. Cause it's a, it's a dream to get up there. But, um, how much of that played into like actually starting the, the museum, like preserving that history? Is that entirely what was behind it? I mean, I have to believe some of it was also just like your own, kind of fanboy like cryptozoology fanboy where you, where you want to see something like this too no it was very much uh, I there was many different purposes or missions to the museum sharing education all of that mm-hmm. but one very much was I was seeing so many collections destroyed so many uh, libraries going on eBay that I decided uh, one of the main focuses, is to really serve as a model. It's not so much that we want everybody's uh, mementos and souvenirs and evidence, but we want to serve as a model that don't throw this away. Give it to your local historical society, your alumni, something, someplace where it will be preserved. I mean, like we were, if our museum wouldn't exist, for instance, when Finding Bigfoot, the the series, went to film uh, over in New York, they arrived... uh, on Aldea Road, when they were when the utility company was taking down the telephone pole to film the flight hall and other area reports, and they the Finding Bigfoot crew saved the no trespassing sign. They saved part of the telephone pole and donated those to the museum so that they would have a home because they were going to just be thrown away. Mm-hmm. So that very much is a purpose of ours. We want to let people know that if if you have something that you think is worthless, it probably has historical value in cryptozoology. Hmm. Uh, worthless as far as, you know, you're doing an investigation and moving on from it. Yeah. Hey, Lauren, what are some of the unusual pieces in the museum's collection uh, or, or very, very rare pieces that you're kind of most proud of? Sure. Well, there's there's really literally hundreds, but some of the ones that come to mind very quickly is we have fecal material from the Yeti from the 1959 Tom Slick expedition. We have Sir Edmund Hilly's hair samples from his 1960 World Book expedition. We have part of the screen with the Bigfoot of the Falk monster actually broke in hmm. uh, from the home, the famous one that is recreated in the film. Uh, we have a a piece of wood from Ohio that has the teeth marks of a black panther that attacked and killed some calves. So, you know, just you go down. Then, of course, we have uh, orang pindex footprints. We have Bigfoot footprints, uh, the uh, Yowie footprints, Yeti, uh, Tom Cook's Yeti footprints. So there's over 225 footprint casts. Uh, we have some of the rocks from Ruby Creek, 19. 19- 41 from the actual site where we did some diggings. We have the nails from the 8th Canyon uh, 1924 cabin that existed from a, a recent uh, archaeological dig there that were donated to the museum. 
So it's it's just amazing uh, the kind of threads of history that uh, you can go from case to case. And actually, Tom Page, the, the millionaire sponsor of expeditions during the late 60s and 70s, who sponsored Peter Byrne and uh, Roger Patterson to go looking for Bigfoot after the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film, he, uh, he donated his whole collection to the museum because he's getting elderly and he didn't want it to be destroyed. And that includes the dart gun that they actually used to try to take down the first Bigfoot and one of the five canisters of original Patterson-Gimlin films, as well as the correspondence and signatures and on the contracts uh, that went back and forth between the sponsors and, and the people he was, was hiring on for the expedition. So it's just priceless stuff and absolutely has no value to it because it's, it's priceless. So um, you mentioned you mentioned a black cat from Ohio. My, my first question is where was, do you, do you know the location where that was found? Sure, Urbana. Okay, all right. Now, that that opens up a door in my brain because of the Minerva monster case and the supposed, you know, cats that were supposedly seen with the Minerva monster. Um, do you know of other cases besides the Minerva case where there were frequently, you know, Bigfoot type or, or you know, this creature type case uh, where it was seen in conjunction with like cats, especially black cats? Well, uh, yes. Yes and no. What I'm very careful about, I know in that Minerva case, there was some classic combining of the Bigfoot cases and the Black Panther cases, and it's it's almost one of the iconic images that people that know that case think about. Uh, What I found many times with John Keel and myself and others, when we went into a community back in the day, back in the 60s and the early 70s, and you'd start asking around about Black Panthers. Uh, maybe you're drawn to that area because you read about some Black Panther cases in the newspaper, and you get there, and it's almost as if because you're open to listening about uh, strange cats and uh, weird panther-like sightings, then everybody will tell you about everything. They'll tell you about Bigfoot cases. They'll tell you about... Um, you know, giant snake reports, the funny little hairy people, the little people, the UFOs. So you have to sometimes be careful. Keel called it the reflective factor. And what occurs is that uh, just people feel like nobody ever believed them, nobody ever wanted to talk about this. So if you come into the area and you start asking questions around, people who felt very pent up as far as their sightings immediately give forth. If you look at, the, for instance, John Keel, when he went to Point Pleasant, he went there initially to ask people about reports of some domestic cats that had some wings on their back. And before he knew it, there were lots of UFOs that he was hearing about. Then the Mothman cases came about. He heard about cattle mutilations, men in black, and everything. Just, you know, it was the opening of the floodgates from hell almost, Hmm. and he was overwhelmed with almost too many reports. That's why I put it together in almost a a Truman Capote-like book, The Mothman Prophecies. So uh, if you actually, in my book, Mysterious America, I put an appendix at the back, two appendices. One was about mystery cat reports, and the other was about Black Panther reports. 
it's very easy to take the Black Panther listings and put them right next to uh, the board's chronology of Bigfoot sightings and see that there was some overlap sometimes. All right. You know, and that brings up an interesting point, Lauren. I think there's a there's a perception that the 1970s was sort of an era where there were all of these things happening together. Is that just a perception, and has it really been the case that, you know, a lot of strange things have gone together historically, or was it really the case that in the 1970s there was a preponderance of, you know, sort of these areas where all kinds of things were happening all at once? Oh, it was definitely the reality. We called it uh, a time of high strangeness, Uh, and you'll you find authors like Jerry Clark in his uh, ufology study, he called it the high strangeness times, too. Well, in my book, uh, Creatures of the um, Outer Edge, which was written in 1978, I have a whole chapter at the back just about the year 1977, hmm. and it is just full of, of different kinds of weird cases, Bigfoot, the Dover Demon, Black Panthers, Mystery Cats, you know, strange Maine cats, and you had things going on in Indiana, for instance, uh, that would kind of come in and out during the years in which a black panther would be seen with a a deer-colored mountain lion or African lion. And those kinds of cases where people were actually seeing these two different kinds of animals together were so strange and so very much the 70s. Hmm. And actually, you also find... Even though they're cases that I, I almost want to keep in a hand's length, um, it's in the 1970s when you have some of the UFO reports coming in where people were saying that UFOs and Bigfoot were all mixed up, like a lot of Stan Gordon's cases from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. That's the time when there was uh, many, many reports of those in Pennsylvania and throughout the Midwest where that's in many ways where people get confused because they sort of stay in the 70s because we haven't really seen any of those reports since that time. See, I was curious about that, because I was reading your uh, Bigfoot Apes in America, True Story of Apes in America book earlier today. I think think it was that, because I had Mysterious America out too. So it was one or the other. But you were talking, it had to have been Bigfoot, but you were talking about the transition that you made from, or maybe you weren't talking directly about the transition you made, but you, you said that you regretted having a part in kind of the, that UFO Bigfoot overlap, like writing about it or, or however you put it in the book. I'm just curious, like what brought about the, the change where you were like, I almost wish I hadn't even broached that subject. Well, uh, Jerry Clark and I wrote two books together. Our first two books, both of our first two books for each other and for ourselves. One was The Unidentified, which was notes towards solving the UFO mystery. And we looked in there at religious revivals, fairy cases, uh, 1890 uh, airship reports, some different man-animal reports, and some creature reports. And then we wrote in 1978, Creatures of the Outer Edge. And in both of those books, what we did is in our overly intellectualized, youthful way, we took uh, Carl Jung's theories on a planet and made it into a planetary poltergeist. In other words, that all of these things that were happening were psychic projections of the collective unconscious. And we actually created a movement 
that is still alive in Europe, which is the, the social UFO, psychological way of looking at UFO cases, that they're really more paranormal and more mystical than they are actual nuts and bolts. And what occurred is Jerry went more deeply into his UFO field, uh, relating it to extraterrestrials and that there's actually physical evidence. And I got more deeply into the cryptozoological and much more interested in the animals, that they're, you know, cryptozoology is really about finding new animals, finding new species. And I got more deeply into uh, writing about that, finding the evidence, and actually talking very openly about how many new animals were being discovered. And both of us rejected the uh, psychological projection of the collective unconscious, the tupas, you know, very much the X-Files approach to the life, that it, it may be on some kind of uh, fourth dimensional level or whatever. And so when our books uh, were combined by Anomalous Books in 2006 and we published, we wrote a whole new introduction in which we state very openly that, you know, not so much that we're embarrassed, but we reject that youthful way of looking at the world and we're much more grounded in a mature way in looking at the real evidence. And yet we wanted to publish the book again because the book is full, both of the books are full of great data. I mean, we did lots and lots and lots of investigations, you know. Jerry went down to Texas and did the big bird investigations. I went back and forth across Indiana and Ohio and Illinois and did lots of mystery cat reports investigating them. So we put all of that in there and, and keep it in there without changing the body of the book because the good data is there, but we, we frame it in terms of well, this is something we've really grown from and beyond. Yeah, yeah I, the thing I love about that is that it demonstrates that you don't have to be fixed in one opinion. You know, you can grow over time and with various experiences that you have, you can arrive at different conclusions. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think what I've noticed in the field of cryptozoology, besides the fact that some people just get so frustrated they, they wash their hands and walk away, there's also a movement in the field of some people that come into a, you know, they write on all kinds of strange and unknown uh, information and cases. They find cryptozoology is very, let's say, marketable uh, for television programs and books. And then they get frustrated and they start writing books on, well, everybody's wrong. Uh, you know, cryptozoology is all about the paranormal and the occult and spiritual and all these people that think cryptozoology is about real animals are all wrong. And I, I just find that almost as childish as me saying, you know, you read my books in the 1970s and I'm mm. going to stay there. You know, we all have to mm. be able to go in and out of our different ways of thinking. You know, that what that reminds me of is there's a passage, I mean, it's the, it's the end of Mysterious America, you know, and you write, it's, it's pretty much the last words in the book, uh, there is right. nothing wrong with not having all the answers at this stage of the game. Do you still feel right. that way for the most part? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't even know if I'll have all the answers when I die. You know, I mean, maybe I'll find out the real answers after I die. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I think that human beings are like little ants, and we try to act like we are. I mean, I, I was, you know, you called me one of the godfathers. I had a real problem having the word God associated with me at all. I mean, I think that 
you know, there's there's something way beyond us that we don't understand, and we're just trying to come up with some of the answers, but too often we get bogged down in trying to be forced, especially by media, mainstream media. They come along and they say, well, do you believe in this, or what do you think this is? And very often I say, look, I'm uh, I'm old enough now that I can say I don't know. Hmm. That's that's our uh, that's our motto here on Sasswood is I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And we trumpet it every week. Um, okay, I, I have to ask you, as long as I have you on the show, and I know Mark has more questions, but I have to ask you about Bossberg, because it's one of my favorite stories, and you, you when you wrote about Bossberg in uh, Bigfoot, that's one of the things that initially got me, kind of hooked me on this subject, is, is that entire story around the Bossberg tracks and all that stuff, you've got... The the first of all, you've got these very unusual tracks that are being found, but then you've also got the interplay of these Bigfoot uh, luminaries, you know, in the field at the time who are not getting along very well, from what I understand. And can you just talk a little bit about that case and what it was like, you know, your your investigating of it and what you learned about it, and you know, for our listeners, maybe even just a little overview of what that case entailed. Well, uh, that was nineteen sixty nine, right? Washington State, Bosford. Mm-hmm. And there was a situation where this individual who had been investigating Bigfoot for a long time moved into his area, into the area. And unfortunately, the guy was Ivan Marks, a well-known hoaxer. And uh, in some ways, people think he's a real charlatan. And he got involved and he found some tracks. And he all of a sudden called up almost everybody he knew, like John Green and Renee Hendon. Um, and I think even Peter Byrne came in, and they all sort of descended on the area as this was going to be the next big thing, like uh, Bluff Creek. And you have to read the case very, very closely to see there was a real difference. There were two footprints that were actually found, and those are the, the oftentimes called the cripple foot that Grover Krantz got involved with, too. And they... They look like uh, one of the feet show a lot of bumps to the side, almost as if it was a natural deformity on one of the feet. And then the other foot looks like a typical Bigfoot foot, except they were really somewhat bigger than most of the Bigfoot feet that have ever been found. And uh, those were preserved very, very quickly by putting cardboard boxes over them before the casts were taken. But in addition to that, there was a trackway that was found that it some people have said there was over a thousand tracks. Now, my reading of that, my talking to the principals, uh, tell me that those tracks may have looked like the two Bosberg tracks, but there's no direct evidence of that. There wasn't great documentation of that trackway. And since that trackway was much more in snow as well as mud, uh, people just decided to pay much more attention to those two tracks that were uh, there. And you're right, there was all kinds of fighting. There was jealousy, uh, you know, to Hinden, who uh, might have been the Donald Trump of his time. He, just, <laughs> he, would, he would call people names, he would swear at people, he'd call everybody an idiot. You know, he did all of those kinds of things, made no friends at all. He was a Swiss with a heavy Swiss-Canadian accent. John Green, who was a, a very conservative newspaper man and had done a lot of investigations up to that point, would try to be friends with the Hendon, but before you knew it, they were fighting. 
everybody hated Grover Krantz. Everybody was very suspicious of Ivan Marks, and for good reason. You know, Ivan Marks, who has a, a legacy that uh, his protege at the time was a guy named Tom Biscardi, which would show up years and years later in the Georgia Bigfoot hoax. And uh, Ivan Marks' sons are still around with the Biscardi saying, you know, a lot of hoaxes that turn out to be nothing uh, are, uh, you know, tracked back to the Marks family. So anyway, it was a mess. It was just a, a total mess. Uh, I think at some point, that's the kind of case that I just would be very suspicious of putting my whole career on. You know, I, I think it was, it really showed the stress between the investigators. Uh, at one point, John Green, in almost a defensive sort of way, said, there's so many big egos in this field that you can't put us all in the same room. So it kind of makes sense. If you get everybody in one uh, geographic area all investigating the same case, you're going to have a lot of fireworks. And they certainly did with the Bosberg case. It's. It seems like, in a way, we've lost some of those major personalities like those guys. I mean, we don't, you know, I mean, I mean, John Green's still around, but we don't, I don't know that we, that we have a DeHinden out there today. And that's, that's Oh, part, yes, you do. Do we? Yes, yeah. I'm not going to go into any modern names, <laughs> but you, all you have to do is go on some of the Facebook um, Bigfoot groups and you have fights going on. You have people calling other people liars. You have people who are saying, you know, so-and-so's hoaxing. Uh, so and so is only in this for the money. Oh yeah, you, you don't have you don't have pristine personalities like the Hinden was or, or some of those others. But I mean, I, I'm going to say Rick Dyer, who's in hoaxes all over the country. Mm-hmm. He's he's hated in the field, and then you yet you have other people doing video shows about him because they want the publicity. They want the the um, the celebrity of the moment to get them and. You actually, all you have to do is pick up the Newsweek special edition and go through, and you'll see people named in there that hate each other. Yeah. And you wouldn't get them in the same conference together. Why Why is that? Why is, I mean, I, I, you see this in a lot of different fields, obviously. I know ufology suffers from it, too. But, but it seems like the Bigfoot community is particularly uh, cannibalistic. <laughs> well... Uh, I, th- I think all you have to do is step out of this and look more deeply at the personalities in another field. In the field of anthropology, for instance, archaeology, uh, there was a book a few, you know, maybe it's a decade or more. It was called Bones of Contention, and it was about the fights that archaeologists have with each other, or anthropologists. There was, uh, I mean, the whole story about the discovery of the coelacanth. Uh, the, the British stole the first coelacanth uh, and in the second field camp in 1952, uh, out from under the, the French government by flying in an RSA plane and stealing the body and flying it back to England. Wow. So in, in 1998, when the Indonesian coelacanth was discovered in, uh, you know, 6,000 miles away, the French stowed the, the samples of the, um, the first coelacanth from Indonesia and they published before the English could, so that they could name it. So you have those kinds of things definitely going on in science, too. Lauren, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, something that you introduced uh, 
to my knowledge anyway, in Mysterious America. I mean, this goes back to within one or two years of the publication of the first edition. I was reading it as a grade schooler, and the thing that still stuck in my mind, I still think about it quite a bit, is the idea of the name game, as you call it. You know, the right. how how names either reflect or in some cases seem to generate uh, phenomena happening in those places. Um, are there any sort of recent examples that you have of that? Or would you just kind of talk to our listeners a little bit about the name game and, and how, like just across America, for example, um, those right. those names seem to function? Well, there, there's two ways to look at it. One is um, there are places that were named by the original settlers, the, um, the native peoples and the colonists, would come to an area and it would be sinister or it would have creatures there. And they oftentimes would name that area like, uh, you know, Drake, Drake uh, for dragon. Or um, another one that I discovered early on was the devil, the devil's cove or the devil lake or devil's knee. And that oftentimes was a way for the English uh, Anglo settlers to say, hey, this is, there's something a little strange here. There's there's a lake monster there, or there's a Bigfoot in the woods in that area, and so we're going to name it that way. And then uh, what I soon discovered was certainly in the east, the Algonquin Indians would call certain areas that were similar Hockamock. And I found that the word Hockamock actually was another name for the devil or, you know, spirit or something, not the great spirit so much, but a more evil spirit. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's one way that you can look at it. Certainly the uh, people that would settle there would give names to the area that would reflect that they knew something. And people lose track of that. Uh, You know, you drive down uh, Avon Street, where the museum is, for instance, and we've lost track of the fact that the word Avon means near the river. And so what I started doing was looking at the origins for people's names, for names of places, and, and seeing what was going on here. And then, of course, and I don't mean to sound like a, a 9-11 truther or anything, but what I started noticing was that Masons and Freemasons tended to be more in touch with the harmonies or the harmonic notions that names and landscape often can be very uh, tied together. And the Masons and the founders of the country very much were involved with naming certain places. So uh, a name that jumped out for Jim Brandon and myself back in the 70s was the name Fayette, Lafayette, Fayetteville. Fayette goes back to uh, Little Fairy or Little Enchantment. Uh, Joan of Arc talked to fairies under the special fay tree that she uh, would hear voices from. And so I started digging into this and finding over and over and over again that, uh, you know, you pick up a newspaper and uh, a tornado goes through Fayetteville and destroys, you know, a bunch of trailers and stuff, or there's a new, uh, you know, creature report and it happens in Fayette or up in Fayette, Maine, there's a, a, a tipping ghost that brings along a a picture of water to people on a certain road. So uh, I certainly started noticing that. And and then there's all coincidences. Like I could say Urbana, uh, Ohio, has Black Panther reports because guess what? 
I personally investigated the Urbana, uh, Ohio reports and the Urbana, uh, reports from Illinois. And, and so you have coincidences that seem beyond coincidences for some names that keep showing up over and over again. Is, is there a one particular case that you feel like defined your career or one particular case that you are, you know, constantly find yourself thinking about? Um, that's a real hard question to answer because I feel so connected to so many cases. And, uh, I mean, you know, I, I investigated the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts and, and named it. Uh, and so that's kind of followed me down through the years. Uh, but it happened with the Dover Demon in Massachusetts. Or I actually coined the word Phantom Panthers because I investigated so many Black Panther cases in Illinois. Uh, it, it just happens that um, the Montauk Monster, I'm the one that named it. So what happens are cases that kind of jump to my mind are the ones that I just was giving a file name or I was just writing about it in an article or a book. And then all of a sudden, I wake up 40 years later and find out that the Japanese have little toys that are called the Dover Demon. And I, I coined that word, and I could never imagine that that would have happened to me. Yeah. So where do you see cryptozoology going, Lauren? Is there, a, is there a passing of the torch that's going on right now? Or who's stepping up to you know, kind of take the, the ball and run with it? Well, I, I think it's, um, it used to be... Like we used to think in anthropology, that one species evolved into, you know, was Neanderthal evolved into Homo sapiens. We all know that's all wrong now. So it's kind of like that in cryptozoology. I mean, I think, for instance, there's this group doing small town monster documentaries. Terrible. And <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that that is just incredible. I mean, I taught a documentary film course for 23 semesters. Uh, in the 80s and the early part of the 90s. And, and it was like I was beating my head against the wall to try to get students to go into the field of cryptozoology because all of the eyewitnesses were dying. And I said, you know, we need to document. We need to document these. And so for, you know, for you to do that and to really capture that. And in, in some ways, I'm seeing that documentary type or reality television uh, especially one channel, one network that I can think of, really goes out and interviews eyewitnesses. And so I just kind of erase all of the stuff that's, that's around it, the, the silly graphics or the sensationalism, and know that someplace uh, for that television series anyway, there's actual documentary film of some people telling their stories. And that's why I'm not doing this just to you know, kiss up to you, but there's something about your documentaries that seem very pristine to me. You know, wow. you can see the places, you can listen to the eyewitnesses, uh, and you can, you're not bogged down. Uh, like even I worked and consulted to Unsolved Mysteries way back when, and there was an overabundance of rec recreations. Uh, and to me, that got in the way. Uh, just interview the eyewitnesses, show the spots, and you know, some recreations are good, but mm -hmm. then they, they, they merge into docudramas like uh, uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek, which obviously is a film that impacted a lot of people, but I would have just been very happy to have a documentary uh, interviewing the crab trees and looking at their faces, like contorted, reliving some of the experiences. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. Not, so not, I, I not with my movies. To but. the question more broadly, there's lots of different people coming into cryptozoology uh, with a, a lot of new books and a lot of different approaches. So it's hard for me to really know who the, the next Warren Coleman's or the next Ivan Sanderson's are going to be because I'm actually still here. Thank <laughs> yeah. God. Um, well, as long as we're as long as small town monsters came up. Now, one of one of the things that inspired me to create small town monsters was was well, there were two things that were kind of behind it. One was Lyle Blackburn's book, and then the other was your work, um, because you were the first guy that kind of put it in. And I told you this, Lauren, when we were down in Falk. Um, one of the you were one of the first people that I read their work, and it put in my head that these these events took place in a place there's a you know uh, an actual location where these occurred and oftentimes it's connected to a small town and the small town's impacted by it in a major way and um something i've been talking about and you and i had a discussion when we were down in falco that kind of broached this subject but the idea of like crypto tourism and i think what you're doing even with the museum is kind of helping to bring an element of that to your town um, what do you think of that idea, like actually helping, you know, financially strap small towns with like crypto tourism? Is that I mean, are you for that? Because I've talked to some people who are like anti anti crypto tourism or anti legend tripping, whatever you want to you know label you want to slap on it because of, you know, well, they feel like the town is trying to make a buck off of a subject that years ago they scorned. And now they're, you know, using it for tourism. How do you feel about it? Well, I actually uh, coined the word cryptotourism and can point back to the blog that first used it. And I also am the one that told Lyle to write the book for the anomalous, and that's anomalous books and wrote the um, the um, introduction to it. I'm also the one that went to the Chamber of Commerce in Point Pleasant and said, you guys need to have a Mothman Museum because you don't realize what's at your doorstep. Hmm. So I'm very much for cryptotourism. I see it as a way for communities that uh, are actually on the way to becoming vanishing, disappearing. Uh, the Point Pleasant community was a bunch of empty storefronts before the movie came out in 2002. And I went there in 2001, met with the people, the Chamber of Commerce and some other people like, uh, you know, that ran the T-shirt store and said, you guys need to get this together you don't realize that 1.5 million people come to Roswell every year, and there's no reason that this can't happen with cryptozoological you know, stories. Uh, I, I went to the little city in Indiana that has the giant tourist turtle, and I've told them, you guys are really not taking advantage of something that's right down the street, this little pond that you can have uh, tourists and T-shirts and, uh, you know, hamburgers that are called the big turtle or whatever you know so i'm very much i don't think it diminishes the story i think it actually helps promote it and certainly it can be an economic basis for communities to survive i mean there's no reason that people have to uh you know go by the wayside when they have such a resource right in the midst exactly yeah um, well, we we need to start wrapping it up. I'm going to let Mark get one more question in before we we wrap things up. Okay. All right. Well, I, it's really more of a statement, I guess. I just wanted to personally uh, say thank you for the work that you've put in. Um, not only for giving me personally, uh, you know, countless hours of enjoyment in reading your work, but um, 
really expanding my horizons in in the way I think about things and uh, the unexplained in particular. And, you know, one thing leads to another. I mean, we, I think it's safe to say that if I had never run across Mysterious America in a tiny library in Hemlock, Michigan, I probably would not be talking to you right now and uh, co-hosting a podcast. So I just wanted to say uh, thank you for all that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome, both Mark and Seth. And, and I do have a, a one additional answer to an earlier question. I think our future is our youth. And I mean, your son, Mark, and, you know, people that come to me and their kids are so excited about the subject. It's not so much that they'll grow up and become cryptozoologists, but they'll always have that spark of interest, whether they're interested in animals or treating people decently. It's really through those young faces and questions that come to me that I see uh, tomorrow's uh, have some hope. So you're all welcome, and thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, where can people? Where should people go to learn about the museum and your work? Uh, probably one of the easiest places to get uh, a door into the window. I mean, door a window into the museum. If people go to Cryptozoology Museum, all one word, dot com. That's our website for the museum, and they'll find ways to talk to me, uh, ways to purchase some items uh, like books or even plaster casts of Bigfoot. It will support the museum, and that will be quite helpful. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks right, for great. thanks for joining us, Lauren. It was it was awesome of you to come on, and and like Mark said, thank you for me as well. Um, you're one of the reasons I'm into Bigfoot. So. Okay. Great. Well, let's all have a good spring, and maybe we'll have a bunch of cases come our way. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. You can find Sasswat on the web at facebook.com slash Sasswat and at sasswat.podbean.com. We're also on Stitcher and iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at Sasswat Show. Sasswat.